Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's episode offers practical guidance for teams and organizations who are serious about success in the modern economy. With so much writing on innovation, creativity, and spark, it is essential to attract and retain quality talent. But what good does talent do if no one is able to speak their mind? The traditional culture of fitting in and going along spells doom in the knowledge economy. Success requires a continuous influx of new ideas, new challenges, and critical thought, and the interpersonal climate must not suppress, silence, ridicule, or intimidate. Not every idea is good, and yes, there are stupid questions, and yes, dissent can slow things down, but talking through these things is an essential part of the creative process. People must be allowed to voice half-finished thoughts, ask questions from the left field, and brainstorm out loud. It creates a culture where mistakes are owned and corrected, and where the next left-field idea could be the next big thing. Today we explore a culture of psychological safety and provide a blueprint for bringing it to life. We explore the link between how psychological safety and high performance create a culture where it's safe to express ideas, ask questions, and admit mistakes. How we can fertilize creativity, clarify goals, achieve accountability, redefine leadership, and much, much more. Psychological safety brings about this most critical transformation. We welcome the author of The Fearless Organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation and growth, and the mother of the concept of psychological safety. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Amy C. Edmondson. Thank you so much for having me, Aidan. It's great to have you on the show. And as I said to you just before we came on air, it's great to use that term, the mother of a term, because we have the father of this and the father of that. And it's great for someone who's done this, forging the way forward for many, many female change makers, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and CEOs. So bravo for that as well. Thank you. I thought a great way to open the show was a line that encapsulates the very essence of the book in the context of innovation, Amy, and I'll use it as a way to open this episode. And it goes like this, for an organization to truly thrive in a world where innovation can make the difference between success and failure, it is not enough to hire smart people, knowledgeable, skilled, well-meaning people cannot always contribute to what they know at the critical moment on the job when it is needed. Often it's because they're reluctant to stand out, be wrong, or offend the boss. I think that's a brilliant line that encapsulates the idea of psychological safety. I couldn't agree more. And it's wonderful that you highlight that line. I certainly thought long and hard about how to say that in a concise way. And I sometimes feel a little worried about how obvious it is. But then I step back to think, well, it may be obvious, but it's still rare. You know, it's still rare that you find workplaces where people can show up and really use their talent. Really is. And there's a tenant in transformational leadership, which is a farmer does not make crops grow, but creates the environment for crops to grow. And this is one of the many reasons your work is so essential for success in innovation and transformation. Psychological safety is a precondition and a foundation for innovation and creativity to flourish. I love the farmer metaphor because I often do think of it as seed and soil. And I, I think of psychological safety as the soil, but by no means the seed. You know, the, the seeds are innovation projects or a change program or a transformation 
initiative. There's many different seeds that managers and leaders might want to use to make their organizations better. But without that soil, without that fertile soil, those conditions, if you will, the seeds won't flourish. And again, the idea of unlocking the seeds, so enabling them to fall, because people have them inside them, but it's just the fear of failure. And I think it's mm. important to state that psychological safety, the term that you coined, does not mean immunity from consequences. It just means people are not hindered by interpersonal fear. Exactly. Your organization is free to, and in fact must have, some kinds of consequences for excellence and for effort and for really doing great work. But those consequences, sometimes we think of those as, as compensation systems and feedback systems. They're kind of meaningless if people are not able to unleash their talents in the first place. This brings us to your beautiful term, psychological safety. I'd love if you shared your definition, Amy, and indeed the origin of the term in the mid-1990s, as you explain in the opening chapter of The Underpinning. I'll define psychological safety as a belief that the workplace is safe for interpersonal risks, like asking questions, offering a half-baked idea, admitting a mistake, and so forth, and appreciating that those kinds of behaviors, which are very small in a way, are in fact interpersonally risky, is something that not every manager does or recognizes. In other words, we don't fully recognize that those kinds of behaviors can be risky because we worry about what others think of us. And we also don't fully appreciate that people are absolutely free to hold back. When, when they're holding back on a brilliant idea or holding back on asking a question, that's utterly invisible. We don't know it's happening when it's happening. So psychological safety is a belief that asking questions, speaking up with ideas, admitting mistakes will be valued, will not be punished, but will be valued by my colleagues. And there's a term you used in this context, which is discounting the future, <laughs> which involves underweighting and overweighting. I'd love if you shared this, Amy. Yeah, it's not my discovery, but it's a wonderful term in psychology research that says that we human beings are quite prone to discounting the future. What does that mean? It means that we overweight and sometimes dramatically overweight the here and now consequence and then dramatically underweight something that might happen later. So for instance, if I'm a nurse working in a hospital and I'm unsure, and I really lack confidence enough to absolutely raise my hand and speak up, but I'm unsure about medication order, looks to me like it might but might not be the wrong dose. And so I choose not to say something. In that moment, I am underweighting the possible outcome that would happen later of a patient not thriving and maybe worse. And I'm overweighting the outcome that a physician or another colleague might humiliate me for even asking that question. Yeah, and I'd love if you shared the origin, because you did a lot of research, particularly in hospitals, and, and you didn't go after this term, psychological safety, but your research unearthed some surprising results. I stumbled into psychological safety quite by accident. I did not set out to study psychological safety. In fact, I set out to study the learning organization. You know, I really wanted to know why is it that some organizations are better able to learn from their own experiences and their own people's insights and 
their environments better than others. And so I was asked to join a study of medication errors in hospitals. And I jumped at the chance because one of the more favorite themes of mine in terms of thinking about learning organizations was this notion of learning from mistakes. So I figured that in this study of medication errors, there would be an opportunity for me to gain insight into how organizations, how teams and organizations can learn from mistakes when they happen. And so my design, the design for my part of the study was to deliver a well-validated team survey called the Team Diagnostic Survey that measured such things as teamwork effectiveness and quality of relationships and quality of team leadership. And I would get those data in month one. And then over a six-month period, trained medical investigators would collect the error data. And so I hoped that I would just you know, essentially run correlations between various aspects of team effectiveness and error rates. And my hypothesis was, of course, that better teams, according to several scales, would have fewer mistakes. And this, of course, makes sense because patient care delivery, especially in the hospital setting, is quite interactive. It involves a lot of handoffs and a lot of collaboration and coordination. And so I thought when collaboration and coordination are high quality, we should have fewer mistakes. Not, not a surprising hypothesis. However, it didn't actually work out that way. What happened was I got the data, I ran the correlations, and suddenly, um, at first I noticed something good, which was that I had a statistically significant relationship between my team variables and the dependent variable of error rates. And then I suddenly noticed that the correlation was in the wrong direction. In other words, the data seemed to be suggesting that better teams, according to this well-validated instrument, were making more mistakes, not fewer. Now, that struck me as problematic, incredible. I didn't think it could be true. So I sat down to first to see what I'd done wrong in my analytic work and couldn't find anything. And then I finally had this blinding flash of the obvious in which I thought, wait a minute, you know, maybe the better teams, like I trust the instrument, maybe the better teams don't make more mistakes. Maybe they're more willing and able to talk about them. And, and to make a long story, already long story, um, as short as I can, <laughs> as short as I can, I had to do a fair amount of work kind of qualitatively to show what ultimately I think we know with great confidence today, which is that interpersonal climates vary significantly across groups, even within the same organization, and that that climate factor does shape people's willingness to talk about mistakes and take other interpersonal risks. And so I couldn't say that conclusively in this study, but I had enough insight from this study to propose and then test it more systematically in follow-on studies. So it was, as I said, an accident. Yeah, and you mentioned reams of studies and data to support your work now. What I think is a beautiful serendipity is that it was a, a mistake in a way that unearthed all this work for you. You yes. were given the leash long enough in order to succeed. And that's the beautiful irony here that I think. It is. It is. It was a mistake. The study was supposed to do something else and it did this instead. And of course, in retrospect, this is a far more 
interesting and ultimately powerful discovery than what I was originally hoping to find. And one of the studies I mentioned there, there's lots of research and studies to support the work. One of them was with a previous guest and friend of the show, which is Jim Dietert. He was on the show in the early days, actually. And it was your work with him regarding implicit theories of voice and a, another term that you and Jim coined, which was asymmetry of voice and silence. Yes, and Jim is fantastic and has just done such beautiful work on the implicit theories of voice and uh, more recently on, on courage. And, and courage is an important part of this conversation because we do, you know, even in environments that are relatively more psychologically safe, we still need and want people to be willing to come forward with a little bit of courage. Yeah, and I think it's worth highlighting the increasing necessity for psychological safety. And as you say, in the days of yore, there was less complexity with linearly defined task-based jobs and today, jobs are a mix of global, collaborative, and definitely complex roles. So therefore, psychological safety becomes the underpinning of all this. It becomes the foundation on which we build. And you, you use the term which came from the U.S. College of War, which is VUCA. I do. In the book, The Fearless Organization, I try very hard to make the point that this is more, this psychological safety construct more important than ever. So it is, you know, indeed, I stumbled into it more than 20 years ago. And I thought it was important then because I thought learning was important. I thought the ability to continuously learn at work, you know, is mission critical to success. But fast forward to today, and it's that much more important and, and not just learning, but but detection of risks and signals of, of harm or signals of opportunity. As, as you pointed out, we live in this increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment. The short name for that is VUCA. And in a VUCA environment, if we don't have everybody employed as sensors, you know, in a sense, everybody is present to be alert to what's really going on, then we're we're in trouble. And one of the other things then is that you mentioned confidence, but our courage. But the other side of that is confidence to speak up. And when we have more neurodiverse organizations, thankfully, we're inviting people more and more in who would have struggled in workplaces before. And with that comes introverts, for example, so people who aren't as comfortable speaking up. So when they have the confidence to speak up, we can get way more opinions and way more opinions, we can get way more solutions. Exactly. And you used the word invite. And I think it's a very important word because some people will just offer what they're thinking anyway, more, more naturally because of personality differences and so forth. And others will not unless invited, you know, for instance, introverts are less likely to sort of jump in. Um, and when invited, they will obviously offer their thoughts. And and because it's not the case that quality of thinking is correlated with personality type, that means we must go out of our way to ensure that we're getting all of the voices that we need. One of the studies you mentioned is the famous Project Aristotle, which actually called out your term psychological safety, which studied 180 teams in Google. I'd love if you shared this, Amy. Yes, it was uh, actually such a thrill to me to discover that study, which was written up in the New York Times magazine. So it had quite a lot of visibility. It was, in fact, a cover story, and that's a, a well-read paper. And I, you know, I woke up 
February of 2016 and saw this cover. Uh, didn't say psychological safety on the cover, but what it said was what Google learned from its quest uh, to discover why some teams thrive and others falter. And, and the subtitle was something like, you know, surprising new research, you know, kind of is going to unleash the secret sauce to team effectiveness. Now, you can imagine that I was pretty excited uh, to jump right in and, and re read the article because this is my field. And I wanted to know what Google, with all its data and all its brains and analytic prowess, had discovered about the secret sauce to team effectiveness. So you can imagine my surprise when I'm reading a long, long article and, uh, you know, I turn the page and it turns out the secret sauce is psychological safety. You know, Google had tried many, many variables in their models. And the, the one that really explained more of the variance in team performance than any other was indeed psychological safety. So this was quite uh, thrilling uh, for me. And in fact, they in the article, they do re reference my original you know, scholarly work on the topic. So they did get the variable from that work, which was reassuring and um, enormously it must have been so gratifying after all the hard work and all the years and and also people you know once they cotton on to it and this is why i was so keen to get you on the show and share it because it's so important and in this world of volatility and one of the one of the more prevalent parts of the workplace now is geographically dispersed teams so virtual teams people working together from many different countries and what i found really interesting in that world was that again psychological safety underpins and can actually create a more psychological safe environment for people to speak up and to collaborate better. Yes. And, you know, for virtual teams, it's that much more important to be explicit about, you know, the need for input, the need for voice, because the the hurdles are great, as, as everybody certainly recognizes. You know, when you're crossing time zones, even when you're crossing floors within the same office building, it can be harder to coordinate than when you're right next door. So when you have these virtual teams that are spread all over the place, um, you know, the bad news is there's many hurdles to effective coordination. The good news is, though, that it's obvious that those hurdles are there. So that can actually encourage people to be more thoughtful and more proactive in reaching out to invite diverse voices in. At this stage, we'll share one more of the many, many benefits of psychological safety and then jump into some of the great examples you give in the book. But I read once that to keep your job, you only need to use 31% of your discretionary effort. <laughs> and that means a leader's job is to dip into the extra 69%. And again, you mentioned how psychological safety can boost employee engagement and how this is key for optimal performance. And there's a line I found, which is we should give our teams problems to solve rather than solutions to implement, and that boosts engagement massively. Think about it. Human beings are natural problem solvers. That's what we've done throughout time. And, you know, not only are we good at it, and by the way, it's often a team sport, right? To, to, to solve really thorny problems, we almost always need different sources of expertise and some brainstorming and some thinking aloud and some experimenting uh, to get it done. But so not only is this something we're good at, but it's also something that I think is inherently rewarding. I mean, it feels great to confront a problem and then you know work your way through it and come out with a solution on the other side. So 
it's that in trying to get that other 69%, you really want to be engaging people in a way that they naturally want to be engaged. Then the opposite of that is true in the early parts of the book, you give these avoidable disasters that we witnessed. Mm. And one of the famous ones that's in recent years is Volkswagen's Dieselgate. Yes. And, you know, to me, I always want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. You know, every every individual human being has to start out with the benefit of the doubt. So um, that lens leads me to empathize with, say, an engineer at Volkswagen who somehow finds himself or herself in a position of designing software to deceive regulators, right? So the Volkswagen story, as I'm sure most listeners will recall, was, um, and the scandal was about the discovery that they had installed software that would cheat the regulations by making the cars pass um, the tests while actually in reality emitting more particles than was legal. And, you know, I, I can't imagine, talk about problem solving, I can't imagine how, you know, how, how diminishing it must uh, feel uh, to be in a position where you think I'm going to have to design this software to cheat the regulators rather than something so much more straightforward, which is just tell my boss or my boss's boss, that it can't be done, that this engine as currently configured can't pass the test. And and the fear that um, so many in that organization felt about speaking truth to power led them to these fraudulent workarounds. And ultimately, like all fraudulent workarounds, it comes to light. And it's far worse than, of course, what would have happened had they been honest all the way through. Yeah, and it wasn't just a minor miss. The levels of excess fumes spewed into the atmosphere were up to 40 times the permitted levels. And many people don't know this, but when executives turned a blind eye, it ended up in 59 deaths and 30 cases of severe chronic bronchitis. I mean, this was huge, but I get it. You know, the empathy you pour into this story is very important because put yourself in the situation of a fear-based culture, which which was was the case in Volkswagen. There was pressure to mm-hmm. hit these unattainable targets in the US. So they had to do something and people were fearful for losing their jobs and put yourself in that situation. And what do you do? Yes. I mean, and it's so clearly a less good use of human talent than helping everyone roll up their sleeves to solve really important problems. This highlights stretching the heck out of a stretch goal, as you call it. And we see this all the time, usually followed by, I don't know how you do it, just get the job done. And Wells Fargo is another company that stretched the hell out of goals and ended in tears as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, I'm here at at Harvard University, I'm a big fan of stretch goals. You know, I, I, I love ambition. I love aspiration. And so the question becomes, how do you actually have stretch goals in a way that works? And my answer is, you must have an environment of psychological safety. You must be communicating loudly and clearly that you really do want to hear from everybody. You want to hear the truth and you want to have a realistic path forward through you know the the challenges that we've set ourselves, because there's nothing more dangerous than stretch goals and closed ears, and I think that's what we saw at both Wells Fargo and at Volkswagen, where the stretch goals were clear to everyone, um, and what was also clear, I'll put that in quote, to everyone, was that the bosses didn't want to hear 
no for an answer. And one thing many change makers suffer in these kind of scenarios is that they are in weak bargaining positions. So there's a no hierarchical threat from not for non-compliance or not helping them out. So many innovators have to kind of lead and pull people forward to a vision. And oftentimes those same people who are resisting are not resisting the person, they're not resisting the innovation, they're resisting what it means for their own job. And again, psychological safety becomes really, really important here. And I thought that teases nicely up for the next topic, which is dangerous silence. And to use the Sidney Harris quote from the book that you use, <laughs> regret for the things we did can be tempered by time. It's regret for the things we did not do that's unconsolable. And here you share the awful story of NASA space shuttle Columbia. Yes, indeed. And of course, I say I've observed that when in many of the cases where people did not speak up and they didn't, I want to be clear that people don't generally hold back when they're confident that there's a problem or when they're confident that they have the data to make their case, or when they're confident that what they say will be well-received by higher-ups, they hold back in the gray zone. Right? They hold back when they have a worry, but they don't have enough data to support it. They, they have a worry, and they've somehow gotten the message that those above me just don't want to hear it. And in those kinds of moments, you know, the consequences can range from actual loss of life, as in the Columbia shuttle tragedy, 2003, when the shuttle combusted entirely upon reentry into the Earth's atmosphere. So they can range from, you know, actual loss of human life all the way over to mere regret, right? You leave work today and you just feel a little bit bad about yourself. You feel like a wimp, maybe, because you didn't speak up about something that was on your mind that you thought might be important, right? Might not, but it might be important. And it's just not a good feeling. So that's quite a range from, you know, loss of life to mere regret. Uh, but, but even the regret moments kind of add up and diminish your sense of fulfillment and engagement at work. Yeah, and you emphasize the words of the engineer who actually spotted there was something wrong, Rasha Chase. And when he was interviewed by the press, he, the words he chose, as you identify, I think are really important. He didn't say he felt it was not right to speak up. He said he couldn't speak up. And that right. itself speaks volumes. Yes, his, his actual quote was, I just couldn't do it. And that couldn't really speaks to me because it's a very apt description of the social psychology of speaking up in a hierarchy. You know, it's not, it can feel like it's not possible. It's not feasible. And the rest of that quote is, so he says, I just couldn't do it. And then with his hands kind of gesturing with a, a, a line up high above his head and a line below his chin, he says, because she, meaning senior leader Linda Ham, was way up here and I'm way down here. So he's referring to organizational hierarchy as a hugely powerful force in the psyche. And it is. And I love the term you called out here, a Cassandra culture. And I'd love if you share that with our audience. Cassandra was the one who was doomed by having foresight. I mean, she could see what was happening in, in Greek mythology and others couldn't. And so she was, in a sense, doomed to 
want to bring bad news and then be unpopular and people didn't want to hear from her. And I think when we when we think about, you know, when we have a, a culture in which Cassandras are not embraced, you know, because in fact they have valid worries, um, then then we have a dangerous culture. Stepping away from innovation for a moment, and they're in the press at the moment, Uber, for this both changemaker but also whistleblower Susan Fowler and she lacked psychological safety but she had the bravery to stand up and you know she's been named woman of the year etc etc and rightly so because she's paved the way for many people and I thought it was really telling that you said that Fowler when she joined Uber the workforce was 25% female but when she left it was only 6% which speaks volumes as well but I'd love if you took us through the story because it's it's still ongoing. Yes, indeed. And and Susan Fowler, um, it's quite a remarkable story because this isn't a story of pure unwillingness to speak up. In fact, she did speak up. And yet, I guess one way to put it is she was not listened to. Um, so she took her, she had a manager who was um, behaving in aggressive and inappropriate ways, propositioning her and in a sense, making it sound like her performance reviews and so forth were at least partly contingent on her interest in him. And of course, she found that an uncomfortable situation, and it's indeed harassment. So she went and reported it to HR, who told her that um, he, this was a first complaint, and they were surprised, and he was a high performer. And so they really didn't think they could or would do anything about it. But she was sort of free to find another part of the organization to work in. And um, ultimately, to make a long story short, um, it does come to light that this is not at all the first complaint of this particular manager. So um, despite the fact that Fowler was willing to speak up um, and, this, and including the fact that she was not listened to or helped, um, um, this kind of situation was allowed to go on. And of course, Uber and this story are not unique. Um, and it was allowed to go on. And so when stories like this, I mean, you can easily imagine the fact that anyone can make a mistake at any time and we don't want to overreact to mistakes. But when um, problematic behavior is allowed to go on for a long time and the message becomes clear that there's really not going to be a productive response uh, to your voice, then that is is creating, you know, not only a psychologically unsafe environment, but truly a toxic environment as well. And that combination is very likely to drive out some of the talent you absolutely want uh, for the future. And, and to see those dramatic drops in the percent of women in the engineering workforce at Uber um, over a you know, reasonably short time is quite a powerful signal of that poor culture. As you say, some of this is invisible. And again, I, I love the fact that the concept of psychological safety and knowing that this these are the problems and it's not you, you're, you're not the problem if you're going through these things is so important because people don't feel so alone and they don't have mental health issues as a result. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to mirror the brilliant work you're doing. But we've discussed the bad and the ugly, but you also devote a large part of the book to the good. Yes. How about, how about we share some exemplars of a psychologically safe organization and one 
that you give a great story of is the one that's built on psychological safety and candor and this idea of brain trust is Pixar. Yes, Pixar is is in so many ways the the poster child for leadership that understood this challenge. They the, you know, you don't need to use the word psychological safety per se, although nowadays everybody's using it, but to recognize the very real risk that people won't speak up, that people won't give candid feedback, um, you know, that that's kind of the norm rather than the exception. And therefore, to go out of your way as a leader to design in processes and mechanisms and behaviors that build a culture where, in fact, people do speak up. It's just a it's a it's a powerful story of or a powerful case of the payoff, if you will, because Pixar um, is certainly a company that went out of its way to um, ensure that people would speak up with candor, with criticism, with ideas. And uh, they have accomplished the near remarkable feat of something like 17, maybe it's 18 by now, hit movies in a row, right? Not, not you know, okay, now and then we have a hit, um, and then, then we have a dud, and then we have a hit, but, but you know, just consecutive season after season commercial and critical successes that are creative and delightful. So I think Ed Catmull, who was the co-founder and longtime CEO and still is, even in the new ownership structure under Disney, is a very deep thinker and a thoughtful leader who has worked hard on the culture. And that includes working hard on your own behavior. It includes being super clear that, you know, if he's not willing to talk about his own mistakes, why would others? You mentioned Catmull has a term that he talks about, which is uncoupling fear and failure. And I'd love if he shared the idea of brain trust, because it's this concept of consistently tapping in, getting feedback, not taking offense to that mm. feedback, which is core to releasing these blockbusters every time, because they've gone through so many iterations before they even hit hit the movies. It's so true. And, and the, you know, so the initial insight there is that every great movie, probably every great creative product necessarily went through iterations, right? It wasn't born great. And I love the fact that um, Ed Catman will say early on, you know, all of our movies are bad. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. They're going to be bad. They're going to, you know, be sappy or uninteresting and so forth. And, and so the only way we can produce and, and, and deliver great movies to audiences around the world is through this really tough iteration. How do you do that? He says, well, you know, people aren't naturally inclined to kind of raise their hands and criticize their colleagues' work, especially not their boss's work. And so he said, yeah, you have to create the culture. But even more than that, he recognized you need to create structures, right? Structures or scaffolding, if you will, that make it easier because this is inherently hard. And so one of those structures is called the brain trust. And the brain trust is a group of people coming together. It's not a permanent group. It's it's a it's like an event. And it's a group of people who come together at various times during the making of a movie to critique it. And this process only works because it comes with real ground rules and 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 sort of behavioral guidelines such as um, in the brain trust, we're all peers. You know, you kind of leave the regular hierarchy outside the door of the brain trust. And when, and here in this context, we're all peers. And 
criticism and all comments must come from a place of empathy. You know, there but for the grace of God, go I. I could easily produce that blooper as well. And importantly, I think the filmmaker, the director, you know, is there to hear all of this. But none of what people say can be treated as a mandate, only comments and suggestions. So the filmmaker still owns the decision rights. And that's it might sound, well, wait a minute, isn't that sort of hierarchical? But it's an important precondition because otherwise, when people show up, the filmmaker would be defensive. You know, I'm coming into a meeting where you're going to tell me everything that's wrong with my paper. I'm going to just be guarded and I'm not going to hear it in the right way. But if I come in and I know I'm going to listen to everything you have to say, but it's at the end of the day, it's my choice, then I'll listen. It's, a, it's just a very different dynamic. And it's a thoughtfully designed structure to make something that's inherently hard, you know, speaking up with candor when some of that candor is negative, easier than it would otherwise be. Such a great example. And another great example is a South African company, and I'm going to get to it in a sec, but one of the great, many great lines I loved in the mm -hmm. book, Amy, is as follows. No one wants to institute changes in the workplace processes that make a job more difficult and create employee resentment, but too often memos handed down from the top do just that. Far more reasonable is to have the people who are actually doing the work design and redesign the process. And in a fearless organization, suggestions for improvement are actively recruited and instituted when apt. And this exemplifies the essential psychological safety building practice you call inviting participation. And one of the brave stories, and one I'd love you to share as the final story today, is the case study of Anglo-American and the CEO who came in, absolute change maker, Cynthia Carroll. Yes, it's a really profound story because of the number of lives impacted. So Cynthia Carroll uh, came in as the new chief executive officer at, at Anglo-American South African Mining Company and decided that the level of fatalities in worker accidents was simply unacceptable. And when she brought this to the, the board and other executives, they really told her to drop it because it's just, it's a dangerous industry. This is, this is sort of part of, of the way it is around here. And, and uh, she said, nope, not going to drop it. It's important. We're going to take it on. And then went on to say she was going to shut the mine down, you know, until they came together to grapple with and come up with better ways of working that would be more safe. Now, this, of course, was not at all immediately well received, but she had the power and she did it anyway and proceeded to design and enable a conversation where, as you put it, the workers were asked to participate, more than participate, to own the redesign process. Their voices were heard in a structured engagement of putting them in groups to talk together. And the message was sent loud and clear, we really care. We're going to do this. We're with you. We're behind you. And we believe you know more than we do about how to get this done. And it was remarkably successful. What I found absolutely fascinating was every day they were making $8 million and she shuts down yeah. the plant. This, right. like, this money factory and <laughs> the resistance yeah. she had was immense. We're going to have time for just one last thing, which I'd love if you'd do, is 
you devote a whole section to how to set the stage for psychological safety, Amy. I'd love if you took us through this at a very high level. Sure. I mean, to me, setting the stage is about getting us all on the same page. It's about making sure that something is true that probably isn't, which is that, that we all have a shared appreciation for what we're up against. And even more specifically, what are we up against? Generally, we're up against something challenging, you know, a challenging industry, a lot of competition, technical innovations that we're trying to do, whatever it is, you know, keeping patients safe, mining successfully without killing people. These are challenges. So making sure that everybody knows that you know, and that we all know that what we're trying to do together is challenging and relatedly uncertain. There is necessary, inescapable uncertainty about what lies ahead. None of us have a crystal ball. So why do those two things matter so much when you're setting the stage? It's because fundamentally recognizing that we're facing challenges and that we're facing uncertainty creates a rationale for why everyone's voice is desired. You know, without that rationale, the default is always going to be just stay silent, right? You know, when in doubt, stay silent versus when in doubt, hey, my voice might matter. So you're trying to create that rational case that your voice matters. I also think that an important part of setting the stage is reminding people of the purpose, you know, why it matters that we do what we do, you know, why the world is a better place when we successfully deliver our products or services or knowledge. And so that's both motivating and setting the rationale for voice. Such a fantastic book. You cover every aspect and you give us every little nook and cranny of psychological safety. So we're left with no doubts of how to implement it. Amy, you've done a fantastic job. Where can people find out more about your work? Because I know there's many, many variations of psychological safety surveys out there. Yes, indeed. Well, on the Harvard Business School website, you can go to my faculty page and that lists all of the papers and books that I've written. So there's lots of information in there. And the survey measure of psychological safety is in the public domain. You can find it in the academic papers. You can also probably find it by simply Googling psychological safety survey. And people are free to use that measure and certainly free to learn more. The measure is also included in the book, of course. Author of The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth, and the mother of the concept of psychological safety, Amy C. Edmondson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 